We are in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, who called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I like to keep you all guessing about where we're going to be, and so I intentionally tell people different texts just for the fun of it. Um, But Merry Christmas, everyone. We're glad you're here. Uh, We are here to celebrate the birth of Christ and the fact that he took on flesh to die for us. And to me, there's nothing greater than getting to see a bunch of people from different backgrounds coming together to prepare a gift of worship for Christ. And so... Uh, We've given him the gift of our song. Now we want to give him the gift of our heart, right? Because we know that songs sung without a humble and worshipful heart mean nothing. Songs must come with the right heart. And so today we're going to drive in the truth of redemption by studying the Benedictus as we see it in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 uh, to 80. So uh, if you will just join me in a time of prayer. And we will uh, just focus on what God has for us today. Father God, we thank you for the truth that Jesus has saved. God, we thank you that we have a reason to celebrate. We thank you that we have a reason to sing. We have a reason to smile. We have a reason to laugh. We have a reason to drink eggnog and be happy about it, Father. Because all joy has come from you and your Son. Father God, everything that we do this Christmas, may it just be a placeholder and a foretaste of the great joy to come in Christ when his second advent is here and when he splits the sky once again and comes riding as a king seated on a white horse, ready to establish his new kingdom, his heaven and earth, and to set up the dwelling place of God with us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So Luke is very methodical in the way that he wants you to understand the Christmas story. He, he spends multiple vo- verses building up to these, uh, the, this amazing truth that Emmanuel has come, that Jesus Christ, the Savior, the promised Son of David, has come to rescue us. And he does it by recording several songs. So last week we looked at the Magnificat. This week we're looking at the Benedictus. There's also the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. That's where the angels sing to the shepherds. We'll look at that on, at the Christmas Eve service on Tuesday. And then you have the Nunc, the Nunc Dimittis. 
Um, and uh, through these songs, he wants us to, un- to understand the truth of the gospel given to us in Jesus. But to understand the Benedictus, that is the song of blessing, or blessed be the Lord, that's where that name comes from, you have to understand Zechariah's background to see the sweetness of his lyrics, to see the sweetness of his song. Luke introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth as faithful and righteous people. And then it says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now with that little detail, it's, it's, it's not difficult to imagine why Zechariah had great trouble in believing the angel's message that he would have a son. I can imagine they prayed for years, right? Anyone who's not been able to have children can sympathize with this. What's wrong with me? What's going on? Have I displeased God? There's time of fasting and mourning. And then there's this moment where you just kind of give up on that hope. And you bury that hope and it's just dead, right? It's just a, a graveyard of a, of a dream that you had. And so imagine being old and advanced in years. The ship has sailed, so to speak, right? There's no hope of having a child, and then suddenly a, an angel comes from heaven and says, you're going to have a son. I can imagine Zechariah just standing there, and he probably responds in the same way that I would have responded in hearing that I, as an old man with a barren wife who's old herself, would have a son. It's not just unlikely. It's impossible. Do you hear that? Not just unlikely, not just difficult, not just, you know, a, a, a very low probability. It is impossible. It simply cannot happen. And so for Zechariah, the angel's message of good news is too good to be true. Too good to be true. And I sympathize with that when I think about God's promises. And I think about, he's promised us a resurrection, a physical resurrection. That just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? He promises a world without tombs, for example. He promises a world where God himself will dwell with mankind. That just, that's just too good to be true. Look at what we have here in this life. So I think we can sympathize with Zechariah here just a little bit in saying that we understand what it's like to receive message that's just so hard to believe. The angel Gabriel responded to Zechariah's disbelief by saying that he would be unable to speak until the baby was born. This was actually a gift, especially a gift to Elizabeth, but it was a gift. Nine months of being able to do very little. There's no text messaging here. He has a little board we find out later, and if you've ever read or seen Hebrew, it's very methodical to write out, and so he probably wrote very little, right? It probably just said, sandwich, please. And that's it, right? So very difficult time to communicate, lots of solitude and silence. Nine months to sit, listen, and think. For Zechariah, this wasn't a time to speak about possibilities. For Zechariah, this wasn't a time to speak logic. This was a time to listen to the Lord's promise and to think and ponder upon what God has done. And, and for nine months, he says nothing. Baby comes, and then at the naming of the baby's, uh, at the baby's naming ceremony, he opens his mouth, says his name will, name will be John, and then he breaks out into this amazing song, which indicates for nine months, this man has been reading scripture and pondering on God's past redemptive work. 
For nine months, he's been thinking about all these amazing stories that he quotes and alludes to here in this song. The song makes several connections to God's redemptive work in the Old Testament. He talks about the Exodus, for example. He talks about David. He talks about Abraham. And with each of these connections, it reinforces the truth that God is the God who always keeps his promises. God is the God who always keeps his promises, even when those promises face impossibilities, difficulties, barriers, hindrances, unlikelihoods. In all of this, we are reminded that God's redemptive promises will come to fulfillment just as he said they would. This is because God's word is not contingent on what they face. It's not contingent on the mountains that they have to climb over. It's not contingent on the hurdles that must be jumped over. The promises of God are contingent and dependent and fulfilled by a God who is faithful. And not one word, not one word of his good promises will fail. Now, if you're like me, you look at songs like this, you kind of see them as, I don't know if you guys like poetry or not, but I, I'm a very orderly guy. I like to see structure. And so one of the worst things to me is reading a song or poetry that, does, that has no apparent structure. It just seems like a, a bunch of statements that can stand independently. Haikus are the worst, okay? Um, each line kind of standing on its own, seemingly nothing to do with the rest of it. I, I hate haikus. And so as I was reading through this, at first I found myself frustrated. I'm like, man, Zechariah, you had nine months to make this song. <laughs> and, and I couldn't seem to find a structure until it dawned on me. There's a very intentional structure to this song. If you look at it close, you see Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. And he forms, for you liter- literature nerds, he for- forms what's called a chiasm right? If you know what a chiasm is, it's where basically he sets up truths that build up to a central point and then mirrors those truths back down. And so you get verses 68 to 71, they lead up to the central truth, the main point of this song, which is in verses 72 through 73. And then he works his way back down in reverse order of what he just listed um, to show the implications of that central truth. And so you begin with blessing, right? And that's sandwiched with peace, right? So blessing God is, is held in juxtaposition to peace with God. And then you get visited and visited, salvation, salvation, prophets and prophet from the hand of our enemies, from the hand of our enemies. And then right in the center of it all, the amazing words, the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. Now, what does that chiasm tell us about what was central in Zechariah's mind? That God's promises stand at the center of redemption. That God is the God who has promised. He is the God who has remembered his covenant. He has kept his oath, which means that blessing, the blessing he promised all the way back in Genesis 12 has come. And now the nations of the earth, the families of the earth will be blessed because of the great God who has remembered his promise. And implicit in all of this, I think it's ironic that he quotes Abraham, that he, that he speaks about Abraham because he just told an angel that God cannot make an old barren couple have a baby. 
And then he talks about God's promise that he kept to Abraham to implicitly show that God has overcome every single obstacle leading up to redemption, and we continue to feel the reverberations of that redemption throughout our lives now. God is the God who keeps his promise. It's the heartbeat of the song. This is going to sound repetitive, but I think this is the way you should read it. God is to be blessed or praised. Why? Because he has kept his promise. He has visited and redeemed because he has kept his promise. He has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David because he has kept his promise. The prophetic hopes have been fulfilled because God has kept his promise. We have been delivered from our enemies because God has kept his promise. And then you round the corner in verse 73, and then he begins again. Because God kept his promise, we have been delivered to serve a new master. Because God has kept his promise, John has been raised up to prophetically call God's people to repentance. Because God kept his promise, we have been given the knowledge of salvation. Because God has kept his promise, the sunrise of Christ has visited us from on high. Because God has kept his promise, we have peace with God. It's the drumbeat, it's the rhythm, it's the melody that Zechariah dances to here. God has kept his promise. It's the foundation of all of our worship, isn't it? I mean, just think about what song could we have sang today if God had not kept his promise? How could we even come to church and celebrate a God who has not kept his promise? Would there even be a Christmas celebration without a God who keeps his promise? The foundation of all of our worship, especially at Christmas, is the good news. And this sounds absolutely elementary. It sounds high-minded theology, but it is something that has an immediate effect on your daily life. Your God remembered. He did what he said he would do. And better yet, he will continue to do what he has promised he will do. We have a God who's kept his promise. Zechariah begins his psalm saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is very similar to Mary's song, which begins with the words, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's a declaration of God's worthiness to be praised. Mary magnified God because he looked upon the humble. He didn't overlook those of lowly estate. Zechariah blesses the Lord, however, because God has redeemed his people. It's a similar song, just with a brand new texture and a brand new color to it and a brand new rhythm about it. And so in each of these songs, we see something glorious that God is doing. And then he says this about God's redemption. This is why he believes God is worthy to be praised. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now Zechariah's words are filled with Old Testament expectation. These Old Testament redemptive themes. In the first line he says that God has visited and redeemed his people. Both words, visited and redeemed, are descriptive of what God did all the way back in the Exodus. If you want to see where that word pairing comes back to, it comes back to the God who overcame impossible odds, defeating Pharaoh, defeating the strongest nation on earth, letting slaves plunder their Egyptian taskmasters and helping them to walk out free. God has visited. God has redeemed. So Zechariah is thinking back on that. 
as he's singing the song. He moves on to the next line. He says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In the Old Testament, a horn is not like a, you know, I've got a little shofar in there that you guys have all commented on. And yes, I do play it on Tuesdays um, just for fun. Um, uh, But the horn is more of an ox horn. It's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of power. And so when God talks about raising up a horn, he's raising up power. So he's talking about a horn of salvation here, which means that God has shown himself to be strong to save. God is a mighty Savior. God is the one who has revealed his salvation in power. And where has this powerful salvation come from? According to Zechariah, it was raised up in the house of his servant David. This goes all the way back to Psalm 132, where God promises there in Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe in shame, but on him his crown will shine. So according to this psalm, God allows this strong salvation to rise up out of David's house and Davidic kings fall. And the crown of David's reign shines bright. It's all because God keeps his oath. God keeps his promise. God has done what he said he would do in, this, in the life of the Messiah who has come. All this, Zechariah says, is according to God's words spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. Now, I think when you, when you think back on the prophets, we think about these guys who kind of wrote a lot of jumble, right? But if you go back and you actually read them, you see, according to what First Peter said, that these prophets are guys that are looking ahead to the redemptive fulfillment that's in Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so he's saying that all of this has happened according to what God has revealed in the Old Testament. Every redemptive promise that we are given, every echo, every illusion, every foreshadowing, all of it has been fulfilled in Christ. It's to fulfill the prophetic word, the prophetic hope, the prophetic anticipation. Specifically, he's singing back on the promises that speak of deliverance that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, it should be understood here, Zechariah doesn't have political enemies in mind. He's not just thinking about the Romans, for example. By enemies, he's thinking of anyone or anything, even things inside of us that attempt to destroy God's people and thwart God's covenant promises. Enemies that it's talking about here can naturally allude to sin, rebellion, addictions, idolatries. These things that we hold on to that attempt to destroy us and to thwart God's plan for our lives. God is faithful in his redemption to overcome sin, Satan, and even death itself. All that are declared to be enemies of God. He destroys spiritual pharaohs and Goliaths in our own lives in order to keep his people out of captivity to sin and death. So Zechariah then, after nine months, nine months, day after day, waking up and thinking back in the Old Testament. I used to imagine this has been a beautiful, by, by the beginning, it, it felt like punishment, didn't it? It kind of was stated like it would be a disciplinary measure, that he would be silent for nine months. And I imagine day one, he woke up and he wants a cup of coffee or something. So he rolls over to ask Elizabeth to fix him some. 
She smiles as he can't say anything. Day two, he wakes up. He wants to go to his friend's house and talk about the newspaper and all the stuff that he sees with the Romans. And did you hear what Herod did and this and that? Can't say anything. So by day four or five, maybe he's thinking, I've got really nothing better to do than just to read. Maybe he goes back to Isaiah. Maybe he pulls out the old Psalms. Gosh, he's a Hebrew. He's probably just sitting there saying, I can't say the Psalms. I'll just think on them and ponder and meditate and meditate. Day after day, just sitting there thinking about Psalm 138 and the horn from David's house, the salvation that's about to come, the exodus and how God visited and redeemed. And then suddenly, voices opened and he's able to sing about the Messiah being the fulfillment of all of that. That Jesus' coming has brought the fulfillment of all the promises in Jesus. We have the yes and amen to every single promise God has made. We have the telos, the destination, the final fulfillment in God who has become the incarnate Messiah. Now, that's all great. It's great truth that we hold on to, but if we were to stop there, we'd leave the rest of the song unsung. This has ongoing ramifications for daily life. This has ongoing ramifications for the way that you wake up every morning and think and how you do and what you say. This has ongoing ramifications for your Christmas. This has ongoing ramifications for your family. Ongoing ramifications for how you view the world. And so as we turn the corner now, we now look at the ongoing ramifications. And the first ramification of God's redemption is simply stated this. He starts to work in reverse order. He just talked about salvation from the hand of the enemies by the promise of God. Now he comes back to the hand of the enemies. He says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So he picks it up again, being saved from enemies. Can you imagine the joyful news that you have been saved from sin, from Satan, from every human captor, that you are free? Great news. But then the rest of the song says, but you've not just been set free. You've been set free to serve the real master. Going back to Exodus, it wasn't just that they were set free from Pharaoh. They were set free in order to serve the right God. They were set free in order to serve the right king, the true king of Egypt, and not just the king of Egypt, the true king of the whole world. They were set free to serve him who really, truly reigned. My friends, the message of Christmas, far too often we sing, set free from sin, set free from sin. Yes, so that you may serve the Lord Most High, so that you can serve Yahweh. It's not just a license that, that, that has now been bought because of your freedom from sin. It's not that you've been set free to now do whatever we want. We have been set free so that we will serve Him in holiness and righteousness. So, it's continual ramifications. No longer do we serve taskmasters of our rebellious cravings. That's the ramification it should have. Your cravings, your lusts, your, your drives, your desires, your deep longings for sinful things should be at an end. We serve a Lord and King who loves us. 
hands that were once bound to serve every sinful inclination are now holy hands that can be lifted up to God in worship. Minds that were once captivated by every lofty thought raised against God most high are now to think upon that which is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. Eyes. Deceptive eyes that are so easily drawn aside by provocative images and videos and people are now set free to be able to look upon him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Christ, every faculty of your being has been set free to serve him in holiness and in righteousness. That's where we continue to ask, okay, my hands are free, so what do I do with them now? My eyes are free. What do I do with them now? My mind is free. What do I do with it now? My emotions are free. What do I do with them now? My words are free. My mouth is free. I can say I'm free from from sinful speech. Now what do I do with it? And that's when Zechariah says, serve him. Serve him in holiness and righteousness. Don't just sit there and bask in freedom. Give yourself over fully to the true master. A second ramification is given in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now you see how he juxtaposes that with the the Old Testament prophets that he just spoke about. So he's coming back to prophetic person. And according to 1 Peter 1, the prophet's ministry is all about searching and inquiring, inquiring carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Jesus. So just to put it in plain speech, Prophetic work is all about pointing to Jesus. Prophetic work is all about pointing to the Messiah. Prophetic work is all about preparation. Get ready because the king has come. Get ready because the Messiah has come to his people. In Malachi 3, God says that he will send a messenger before him who will prepare his way before the people. And this preparation includes repentance. My friends, the most holy, the most perfect, the most pure, the most righteous, the most good, the most loving, the most kind, the most wrathful being is coming among his people. What do you think that means then? It means we must prepare. It means we must prepare our hearts. We must turn from sin. We must turn away from that which is unholy. We must turn away from the things that would call us to rebel against this most high king. Prepare. There's a first advent and John came to get everyone ready. Well, there's a second advent coming too. And now our job as a church is prophetically calling people to repent. Calling people to prepare for the way of the master, for the way of the Lord that is coming. To make straight his paths and to get ready because the king is coming. He's been dead for thousands of years, John has, and yet he still tells us that. He still tells us, repent, repent, repent. My friends, the best way to worship the Lord during Christmas is to worship with clean and pure hands and a clean and pure heart that has been washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hands that are determined not to do things that are against God. Now, in addition to calling the people to repent, 
John will give knowledge of salvation to God's people and the forgiveness of their sins. This is yet another ramification of redemption. So we just had the ramification of repentance, and now we get to an, uh, this, this uh, I think it's the, the fourth, maybe it's the third ramification of redemption. In verse 69, he spoke of the horn of salvation that has been raised in David's house. Now in verse 77, he talks about the knowledge of salvation, this intimate knowing that God has saved, that has come from David's house, that God has raised up a savior, that God has raised up a horn of salvation, that God has shown himself to be a powerful rescuer. You ready for this? means that you are forgiven of your sins. My friends, there's no telling the weight of guilt and shame that some of you carry in secret. There's no telling the things that you try to cover up to keep others from knowing. If they just knew that, they, you'd be mortified about those things. You carry thoughts of sins all the way back 10, 20, 30 years ago. You bear the weight of things you know you shouldn't have done. You bear the weight of rebellion. You bear the weight of the way you continue to, to rebel against God. And yet, the good news of Christ is that God has taken that record of debt that weighs so heavy on your mind and he's nailed it to the cross, canceling it in the blood of Christ. My friends, let down the burden of shame. Let down the burden of guilt. You are forgiven. Just bask on that truth for a minute. That's not just high theology. You right here, right now, in Christ, by faith, because of his blood, are set free from eternal damnation and condemnation under a wrathful God. You bear no burden that he did not carry for you. And now you're free, forgiven, burden lifted up, forgiven, burden taken away. My friends, we far too often just think of that we want the practical application. And yet we forget of the practicalness of the fact that you've been forgiven from all your transgressions. Psalm 32.1 says this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Jesus Christ was born in the manger all to take on flesh so that he could be tempted in the flesh so that he could physically walk to Jerusalem where he would be tried, spat upon, hit, so that a physical cross could be laid on his fleshly shoulders so that a cat of nine tails can come across and rip and tear sinew and muscle and scratch bone. So that a real nail could go through his real wrist, that real blood could pour out as real crowns of thorns continued to make blood pour down his brow so that he could really die for your really bad sins. And then he really rose from the grave, a real grave, not a metaphorical one, a real grave. And he stands now as a real savior. You have been washed from the guiltiness of your stains. Now this isn't just, it is absolutely good news, but it's not just meant to make you feel good. This is news that is enough to humble the most self-righteous person and also to encourage the most desperate sinner. 
My friends, it is a gospel that bows heads that are raised high. And it is a gospel that raises high, raises heads that are hung low. You see what it does? There's some of us in here today that forget that we stand not because of righteousness on our own. We do not stand before God because of all the good things that we do. We do not stand before God because of our morality, because of our good philosophy, because of our political inclinations. We do not stand before God because of anything we have done. We stand before God because God is Jehovah to scan you. God, my righteousness is not a righteousness in and of myself. It is alien and foreign to me. Something totally other than me. And yet that stands in my behalf and therefore becomes mine. Desperate sinner. You're right. You've got a lot of guilt. There's been a lot of stains in that white robe that you bear around. It's a lot of past scars and hurts and wounds, wounds you've given others, wounds you've taken on yourself. And yet, the good news is Jehovah to scan you. God, your righteousness, stands on your behalf. Now, the fourth ramification I find beautiful. If you were like me, you woke up this morning and you're pretty tired from Christmas already. It's not even here yet. Um, I can't shove another cookie in my mouth, but I will. <laughs> we have been on plenty of parties. We've been out. We've been doing lots of things. I'm just tired, right? I woke up this morning and my heart just icy cold. Ah, another Christmas thing to get ready. And then I turned to this. In verse 78, and I hope you feel it the way that I felt it. Suddenly the ice begins to melt and drip when you hear this image. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, the shadow of death. Now that understanding of sunrise, it is very pregnant with Old Testament redemptive meaning. It's not just that he's picking up some beautiful image. He's picking up an image from the Old Testament that is, is filled with all kinds of connotations for your life. It, it, he's bringing it from Malachi 4, which says this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. The Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Last Friday we were doing a, this last Friday we were doing a little play um, for the staff and elders and deacons Christmas party and uh, old Charlie was leaping well, he was the ten lords of leaping I thought that's an image of what my Malachi four is talking about it will go leaping like calves this is inc- incredible happiness this incredible joy there's some of you right now that don't feel like you'll ever leap again. Maybe you've never leaped just because your life has been that burdened, that heavy, that hard. And yet, he speaks of the sunrise. For those of us who dwell in darkness, those of you who leave the blinds on your windows closed, those of you who leave the light off and keep the covers over your head in bed because you're too depressed to get up in the morning, Those of you who fear the dark, 
knowing that in comes the nightmares, in comes the fears, in comes the worries and the anxieties and the chronic pain. And the message of the gospel is that the sunrise has shined on you. And it has healing in its wings. If you are someone with a broken heart, if you are someone whose heart feels full of darkness because of the sadness and the grief and the pain, the loss, the mourning, the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, cold, lonely nights filled with sorrow will be replaced with the warmth of day. Because Christ is Savior, Christ is Lord, Christ has come. Absolute restoration, that's the promise. My friends, it doesn't take away your suffering now. There is no one but God himself that can do that. It doesn't end the heartache now. And by no means is it meant to simplify it. Darkness is dark. Night is cold. It's okay for you to feel that way. It's okay for you to acknowledge that. But do not despair of a cold, dark, lonely night without remembering that the sunrise has already dawned. The light's already on the horizon. Restoration is on the way. Healing is coming. Your loved one in the Lord will breathe again. You will breathe again freely. Restoration's coming and your sorrow will be buried, never to rise again. This is especially good news for you who have that hurting heart. We want to pray for you today, if that's you. We want to pray specifically Psalm 126.5, which says, those who sow in tears, those who plant the seed with tears, shall reap with shouts of joy. Man, to think, to think of a Brittany harp shouting with joy when that restoration comes. To think of a Peggy Ivy shouting with joy when that restoration comes. To think of, of, of those who have chronic pain, weeping and hurting and rubbing ointment on their joints, and all of a sudden it's turned and flipped and they shout with joy. No more pain. To see tears that were once filling our eyes wiped away. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy because of the healing that is in the sunrise's wings. Now the final line of Zechariah's song that the sunrise has come is that it's to guide our feet to the way of peace. The sunrise with healing in its wings guides our feet to the way of peace. In Christ... Sinners who were once at enmity with the Creator are now renewed in peace with Him. We are reconciled to Him. It's this reason that the angel saying in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Not just joy, that's great. We hear a lot about joy, that's good. Not just the new heaven and earth, that's, that's great. None of that would be anything without what they actually say. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace with God. Psalm 23. You may now lie in not dry and dusty and broken pastures. You will lie in green pastures. You won't stand and watch your own back. You will lie down. A sheep lying down is a sheep at peace. You will drink deeply from still waters. Sweet 
cool waters given to you by your shepherd. Eat freely and be full and satisfied for the first time ever. And all of that because you are at rest and with peace with your Savior. My friends, I understand this may not sound that much like a Christmas sermon. But this is the heartbeat of Christmas. Christmas is far bigger than it was when you were a child. The anticipation, the hope, the redemptive escalation that leads us to Jesus. This is what's coming because Jesus is Lord. This is what's coming because Jesus took on flesh. Christmas is ultimately a celebration of God's faithfulness to do Every word that he has promised to do. If Abram's and Sarai's barrenness and old age did not stop his redemptive work, if Pharaoh could not keep God's people in captivity, if David's enemies could not defeat him, if Israel's own sinfulness and exile could not thwart God's plan, if Zechariah's failure to believe did not stop God from working, there is nothing in this room, no lack of faith, no weakness, no hurt, no pain, no death, No graveyard that can stop anything that God has said will happen. That is why we celebrate, not mourn at Christmas. That is why we sing for joy. Because our God is the one who has saved. Yes, it's a mingling, and it's a a mingling of hurt and pains, and there's empty chairs at Christmas, around the Christmas dinner table, and Things that we once did with loved ones, we don't do anymore because they're not there. And yet it's at that moment that God's gospel speaks the loudest into your life. Celebrate. Celebrate. Let it continue to build up year after year. Just every Christmas, just build upon it. Let Christmas grow. The older you get, the bigger it should get. Let it grow and let it grow. And Advent comes and 25 days of Christmas comes and you stir your heart to worship year after year after year after year. And then one year, just think of the beauty of this. You spent years of your life building it up. Pouring on, putting on the yuletide log on your heart to stir up your worship, to build the fire, and it's gotten brighter and hotter and warmer. And then suddenly, the second advent comes. And the one that you have waited for all these long Christmases, you no longer have to just think about, but you can see. You no longer have to just turn your mind's eye to him. You can see him with your eyes, touch him with your hands, worship him on earth. My friends, I I pray, and this is my prayer for us this Christmas, that the cold, icy, crusty hearts that we have will be melted by the warmth of this gospel that has dawned in Christ. That if you're hurting, you'll experience the healing that is in its wings And that its light will guide you to true peace. Not just all is well in silent night. But shalom. Wholeness. Wholeness with God. Satisfaction with God. May we bless the Lord with our joyful singing this Christmas. Because he is worthy to be blessed. Let's pray. Father God, it has been a tough year for many.
And even for those of us that have had a somewhat normal year, Father, the ice still crusts our hearts from time to time. God, at this moment, I pray that the Benedictus will serve as an amazingly big fire, uh, piece of firewood, Father. That it will burn long this Christmas. That it will burn bright and warm. Lord, that my hapless stumbling around words and my attempt to describe that which is undescribable. God, that this piece of wood that you have given us to worship you with, that we will continue to burn long into the night. God, help us to worship you this Christmas and to remember that we celebrate because Christ is King. We celebrate because Christ has come to be the yes and amen of all of God's promises. We love you. And Lord, as we sing now, God, I pray that we'll sing in such a way that Christmas will ring true in our hearts. Father, that it won't just be a bunch of hymns or carols, Father, that we sing and don't think of the lyrics, but that it'll be a foretaste of the Advent songs that we will sing when Jesus breaks the sky. We give you our worship. We give you our hearts. And now, Father, we ask that you will continue to be the God who keeps your promise to us. We love you because you are faithful. We love you because you are merciful and you are strong and you have given us a savior. Thank you for Christmas, Father. We pray this in your son's name, amen.